Chapter 25, Part 1 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wilma Magastino. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Lawyer. Chapter 25, Part 1. There was no hope of improvement in the state of the country round Baghdad. The Pasha had left the dome of the Hindia, which shortly after again gave way and afforded fresh retreats to the Arabs. Under these circumstances, and for other reasons, I deem it prudent to give up for the time the excavations in the ruins of Babylonia, when tranquility had been to some extent restored in the Pashalik. An expedition might be undertaken either by myself or by some other traveller with better prospects of success. The Shamar Bedouins were now moving northwards towards their spring and summer pastures. I had been in continual communication with the sons of Rishwan. Satum, whose wife's imperious temper still kept him apart from his family, had encamped during the winter with another branch of the tribe in the neighborhood of Tekrit. It was suspected that he had been privy to more than one successful attack on the Turkish post, and on certain treasure convoys belonging to the government. The roads between Baghdad and Mosul were completely closed by bands of Bedouins, who plundered every caravan that came within their reach. Sahiman and Mishwil had accompanied their father to the plains of southern Babylonia, the latter had been severely wounded in some affray. As Sahiman was journeying northwards with the rest of his tribe, I thought this a good opportunity of following under his protection the direct track to Mosul through the desert and along the western bank of the Tigris. He at once consented to escort me, only stipulating that I should obtain permission from the Pasha for his camels and flocks to pasture the suburbs of Baghdad. Instead of following the longer and more difficult road through the marshes, like those of the rest of the tribe, the request was granted, and a guarantee was given to me by the governor and the commander-in-chief of the troops that my Bedouin friend, with his family and property, should crease the city and safety. They had no sooner, however, entered the gates then they were fallen upon by inhabitants of the quarter, aided by a body of irregular troops and agalis. Abandoning nearly eight hundred camels, Sahiman and his brother Arabs fled into the desert. Warmly supported by Captain Kimbal, I remonstrated indignantly against this act of treachery. The Turkish authorities declared that it was an accident beyond their control, and at length adopted means to recover the stolen camels. It was, however, with some difficulty that I was able to find Sahiman, and then to induce him to return to Baghdad. Eventually, the greater part of his property was restored to him. It is thus that the Bedouins are encouraged in continual enmity to the Porte, and that their reliance to the good faith of the Turks and of the inhabitants of towns has been completely destroyed. This untimely occurrence, as well as repeated attacks of fever, delayed my departure for some days, and it was not until the 27th of February 
that bidding adieu to my good friends of Baghdad, I crossed the Tigris by the crazy bridge of boats and took the crowded road to Katime. There, I passed the night beneath the hospitable roof of the Nawab of Ud. At daybreak on the following morning, under the guidance of Sahima and accompanied by Hormuz, the Jebus and my servants, I left the sacred suburb and followed the beaten track leading to the desert. In order to avoid the windings of the river, we struck across the barren plain. The low houses of Akmain soon disappeared from our sight, but for some miles we watched the gilded domes and minarets of the tombs of the imams, rising above the dark belt palms and glittering in the rays of the morning sun. At last they too vanished, and I had looked for the last time upon Baghdad. We were now in as complete a wilderness as if we had been wandering in the midst of Arabia, and not within a few miles of a great city. Not a living creature broke the solitude. Here and there we saw the sites of former encampments, but the Arabs had long since left them, either to move further into the desert or to seek security from an enemy amongst the date groves in the banks of the river. We traveled with speed over the plain, and after a ride of nine hours we found ourselves in the midst of the palm trees of a village called Sumaika, formerly a town of some importance, and still watered by the Dujail, a wide and deep canal of the time of the caliphs, they arrived from the Tigris. The inhabitants seeing horsemen in the distance mistook us for enemies, but finding that we were travelers and friends, they escorted us to the house of the sheikh, Hashem, who immediately slew a ship and made other hospitable preparations for our entertainment. This chief, although now ruling over a stationary tribe who steal the soil, is of Shamar descent and is married to a Bedouin lady. As his wife, however, will not condescend to live within four walls, he is obliged to compromise matters by passing one half of the year under her tent and the other in his hovel amongst his own people. As we expected to fall in with her tribe during our journey northwards, he entrusted me with a bundle of embroidered cloaks and colored kerchiefs as presents to her and her kin. His massif was credited with Bedouins, for amongst the Arabs the hospitality of Hashem had become a proverb. Sumaika, too, being on the edge of the desert, is convenient for hearing news from the town, and as a place of meeting before or after plundering expeditions. Although a Turkish mater, with a garrison of dozen half-starved Albanians, resides within the walls of his ruined city. The plain on all sides is intersected by the remains of innumerable canals and watercourses, derived from the Tigris and the Dujail. Their lofty banks narrowed the view, and it was only as we passed over them, after quitting Sumaika, that we saw the distant palm groves of the large village of Belen. We left the village to the right and passed through the ruins of an Arab town of the time of the caliphs. Beyond it we crossed the Dujail by a falling bridge of four large arches with a small R between each. The beauty of the masonry, the ornamental inscriptions, and rich tracery of this ruin showed that it was of the best period of Arab architecture. To the north of the Dujal, we found through a perfect maze of ancient canals now dry. It required the practiced eye of the Bedouin, 
to follow the sand-covered track. About eight miles beyond the bridge, the embankment suddenly ceased. A high rampart of earth then stretched as far as the eye could see, to the right and to the left. At certain distances were mounds, forming square enclosures like ruined outworks. A few hundred yards in advance was a second rampart, much lower and narrower than the first. We had reached what some believed to be the famous Median Wall, one of the many wonders of Babylonia, built by the Babylonians from river to river across Mesopotamia, to guard their wealthy city and thickly peopled provinces against invasion from the north. Captain Jones, however, who has examined these remains with more care and for a greater distance than any other traveler or than I could do during a hasty journey, is of opinion that they are not those of a wall of defense, but merely of an embankment stretching for miles inland, and originally raised to protect the lower country from inundations and to regulate its irrigation. I confess that my own impression, even after this explanation, was in favor of the rampart. At any rate, if this be not the median wall, no traces of which have been as yet found in any other part of Mesopotamia, it appeared to me to be a regular line of fortification. It is called by the Arabs, at the place we cross it, Faria. Elsewhere, the Cedar Al Nimrud or the Rampart of Nimrud. Beyond the median wall, we entered upon undulating gravelly downs, furred by deep ravines, and occasional rising into low hills. With the rich alluvial soil of Babylonia, we had left the boundaries of the ancient province. The banks of the Tigris are here, in general, too high, and the face of the country too unequal to admit of artificial irrigation being carried far inland by watercourses derived from the river. The spiral tower, the dome, and the minarets of Samara at length appeared above the eastern horizon, and we rode towards them. After nine hours and a half's journey, we encamped for the night on the Tigris opposite to the town. As the sun went down, we watched the women who, on the other side of the river, came to fetch their evening supplies of water, and gracefully bearing their pictures on their heads, returned to the gates. But on our bank, the solitude was only broken by a lonely hyena coming to drink at the stream, and the hungry jackals that prowled round our tents. The ruins of an early Arab town called the Sheikh stood on a hill in the distance. And near our camping place were the deserted walls of a more recent settlement. On the third day of our journey, another ride of nine hours and a half, along the banks of the Tigris, brought us to Tikrit. The Arabs were keeping the small town of Tikrit in a state of siege, and its supplies having been cut off, we had some difficulty in getting provisions for ourselves and our horses. We were not sorry to leave Tikrit whose inhabitants did not belie a notorious bad character. Next morning we struck inland, in order to avoid the precipitous hills of Makul. 
at whose very feet sweeps the Tigris. They form part of a long isolated limestone range, which commences with the Sinjur, runs through the center of Mesopotamia, crosses the river near Kankarneini, then takes the name of Amrin, and approaching the mountains of Luristan, continues parallel with them to the Persian province of Fars. In the Makul hills are several ruins, some falling walls, and towers hanging over the Tigris, and once probably the stronghold of a free booter, who levied blackmail on the travelers are called by the Arabs the castle of the giants, and are said to be the dwelling place of jinns and various other supernatural beings. Our track led through a perfect wilderness. We found no water nor saw any moving thing. When, after a long ride of about eleven hours, we reached some brackish springs called Belelis, the complete solitude lulled us into a feeling of security, and we all slept without keeping the custom watch. I was awoke in the middle of the night by an unusual noise close to my tent. I immediately gave the alarm, but it was too late. Two of our horses had been stolen and in the darkness we could not pursue the thieves. Sahiman broke out in reproaches of himself as the cause of our mishap, and wandered about until dawn, in search of some clue to the authors of the theft. At length he tracked them, declared unhesitatingly that they were of the Shamar, pointed out from marks almost imperceptible to any eye, but to that of a Bedouin, that they were four in number, had left their delows at some distance from our tents and had already journeyed far before they had been drawn by our fires to the encampment. These indications were enough. He swore a note that he would follow and bring back our stolen horses, wherever they might be, for it was a shame upon him and his tribe that, whilst under his protection in the desert, we had lost anything belonging to us, and he religiously kept his oath. When we parted at the end of our journey, he began at once to trace the animals. After six weeks' search, during which he went as far as Anna on the Euphrates, where one had been sold to an Arab of the town, he brought them to Mosul. I was away at the time, but he left them with Mr. Rassam, and returned to the desert without asking a reward, for performing an act of duty imperative on a Bedouin. Such instances of honesty and good faith are not uncommon amongst the wandering Arabs, as I can bear witness from personal experience. Mr. Rezam frequently sent Sotom across the desert with as much as five or six hundred pounds in money, and always with the most complete confidence. His only reward was an occasional silk dress, or one or two camel loads of corn for his family, the whole of the value of a few shillings. Of late years, the wool of the Bedouin sheep has been in considerable demand in the European markets, and a large trade in this article has already been opened with the Shamar. Money is generally advanced some months before the sheep are sheared, to enable the Arabs to buy their winter stock of provisions. Mr. Rezam has thus paid beforehand several thousand pounds without any written or other guarantee whatever. The tribes leave the neighborhood of the town and are not again heard of until their long strings of camels are seen bringing the promised wool. I remember a Bedouin coming all the way, alone from a neighborhood of Baghdad, 
to pay Mr. Resem a trifling sum. I think between three and four shillings, the balance of a wool account between them. A youth of the great tribe of Anaza, having quarreled with his parents, ran away and came to Mosul, when he entered as a student in a college. He became a mullah and had almost forgotten his early friends, when a tribe, driven by a famine from the Syrian desert, crossed the Euphrates and encamped near the town to buy corn. Ibn Gishish, their sheikh, hearing by chance that the fugitive was still alive, and now a member of the priesthood, sent a messenger to him to say that since he had quitted his towns, his father had died and had left a certain number of camels, which had been divided according to the law amongst his family. Those allotted to him had been in the safekeeping of the tribe, and had increased yearly. The chief was now ready to do with them as their rightful owner might direct. Mr. Rassam had, at my request, sent a party of Jebwas to renew the excavations at Kalashurjat, which had been very imperfectly examined. The springs of Dalyalis are separated from the shoulder of the Jebel Nakul, which overhangs the ruins, by a wild rocky valley called Wadi Chehanim, the Valley of Hail. We crossed it and the hills in about three hours and a half, and came suddenly upon the workmen, who, of course, took us for Bedouin plunderers and prepared to defend themselves. They had opened trenches in various parts of the great mound, but had made no discoveries of any importance, and I am inclined to doubt whether an edifice containing any number of sculptures or inscriptions ever existed on the platform. Fragments of a mean bull in the alabaster of the Nineveh palaces part of a statue in black stone with a few cuneiform characters and pieces of a large inscribed slab of copper were found in the ruins i collected also the fragments of a large inscribed cylinder in bay clay and a copper cup a few vases in common pottery and some beads we encamped in the jungle to the north of the ruins and were visited by fifteen men of the Albu muhammad who frankly confessed that they were thieves out on their vocation. As the tribe does not bear a very good character for honesty, Nasit might have struck our guess that they had no need of going further to fulfill the object of their journey, we violated the duties of hospitality and put some of them in irons for the night as a guarantee for the good conduct of the rest. I ordered the Jebos to leave Kalashurgat and to return with us to Mosul which were reached the following day. Mr. Bell, who had been sent to Assyria by the trustees of the British Museum to succeed Mr. Cooper as artist to the expedition, had arrived in the town two days before. I rode with him without delay to Koyunjik to examine the excavations made during my absence. I will now describe the sculptures uncovered whilst I was at Baghdad and after my return to Mosul, previous to my departure for England. To the north of the great center hall, four new chambers had been discovered. The first was 96 feet by 23. On its walls were represented the return of an Assyrian army from war, with their spoil of captives and cattle. The prisoners were distinguished by a cap turned back at the top, not unlike the Fergian bonnet reversed, short tunics, and a broad belt. The women had long curls 
falling over their shoulders, and were clothed in fringe robes. The fighting men of the conquered tribe wore a simple fillet round their short hair, a tunic, falling in front to the knee, and behind, to the calf of the leg, a wavy girdle, and a cross belt round their breast, ending in two large tassels. A kneeling camel, receiving its load, was designed with considerable truth and spirit, the legs bent under, the tail raised, the foot of the man on the neck of the animal, to keep it from rising, whilst a second adjusts the burden from behind, form a group seen every day in the desert and in an eastern town. The camel saddle, too, nearly resembled that still used by the Arabs. This chamber opened at one end into a small room, twenty-three feet by thirteen. On its walls were represented a captive tribe, dressed in short tunics, a skin falling from their shoulders, boots laced up in front, and cross bands round their legs. They had short bushy hair and beards. In the outer chamber, two doorways opposite the grand entrances into the great hall, led into a parallel apartment, sixty-two feet by sixteen feet. On its walls was represented the conquest of the same people, wearing the reverse Fergan bonnet. There were long lines of prisoners, some in carts, others on foot. The fighting men, armed with bows and quivers, were made to bear part of the spoil. In the costumes of the warriors and captives, and in the forms of the wagons and war carts, these very leaves bore a striking resemblance to the sculptures of the San of Hadon, described in a previous chapter. It may therefore be inferred that the conquest of the same nation was celebrated in both, and that on these walls we have recorded the successful wars of Sennacherib in the country of Sushana or Elam. This chamber, like the one parallel to it, led at one end into a small room, seventeen feet square. On its walls, the campaign recorded in the adjoining chamber had been continued. These rooms completed the discoveries on the southern side of the palace, on the northern side of the same edifice, and on the river face of the platform. One wall of a third great hall had been uncovered. The other walls had not been excavated at the time of my departure from Mosul. From the very ruinous state of this part of the building, and from the small accumulation of earth above the level of the foundations, it is doubtful whether any sculptures still exist in it. The standing wall had three entrances, the center, formed by winged lions, and the others by fish gods. Of the bare reliefs only fragments now remained. In one set was the picture the conquest of another tribe, dwelling in the marshes of southern Mesopotamia. The Assyrians pursued their enemies in waker boats, such as I have described in my account of the fight of Arabs, on the islands formed by the small streams, flowing through the moors, were Assyrian warriors on horseback. On the same side of the hall was represented the conquest of a second nation, whose men were clothed in long garments, and whose women wore turbans with veils falling to their feet. The Assyrians had plundered their temples, and were seen carrying away their idols. 
of a true glory. The kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they have destroyed them. Unfortunately, the bareliefs were so much injured that the nature of these images could not be satisfactorily ascertained. The figures appeared to be beardless, with the exception of one, which is that of a man raising his right arm and bearing a mace. The three entrances led into one chamber, 86 feet by 24. On its calcined walls were only the faint traces of bareliefs. I could distinguish a line of chariots in a ravine between mountains, warriors throwing logs on a great burning pile of wood, castles on the tops of hills, Assyrians carrying away spoil, amongst which was a royal umbrella, and the king on his throne receiving his army on their return from battle with the captives and booty. Opposite to, and corresponding with the three entrances, from the hall were three other doorways, leading into a parallel chamber of somewhat smaller dimensions. Parts of four slabs were the only sculptures sufficiently well-preserved to be drawn. They represented the siege of a great city, whose many towered walls were defended by slingers, archers, and spearmen. The king himself in his chariot was present at the attack. Around him were his warriors and his led horses. Three more chambers were discovered in this part of the building. They were on the very edge of the river face of the mound. The walls of the outer room had been almost entirely destroyed. An entrance, formed by colossal winged figures, led from it into a second chamber, about twenty-four feet square, in which the sculptures were still partly preserved. Among the bas-reliefs was another battle in a marsh. The Assyrian warriors were seen fighting in boats and bringing their captives to the shore, one of the vessels being towed by a man swimming on an inflated skin. Sennacherib himself, in his chariot, in the midst of a grove of palm trees, received the prisoners and the heads of the slain. Above him was a short epigraph, which appears to read, Sennacherib, king of the country of Assyria, the spoil of the river Agami, from the city of Sakrina, the last line not interpreted. Although the name of this city has not yet been found, as far as I know, in the records and the bulls and on other monuments of the same king, yet the mention of the river enables us to recognize in the bas-reliefs a representation of part of the campaign undertaken by Sennacherib in the fourth year of his reign against Sisabira the Chaldean, whose capital was Betel, on the same stream. Although the river itself has not as yet been identified, it is evidently either a part of the Tigris or Euphrates, or one of their confluents near the Persian Gulf. We have no difficulty, indeed, in determining the site of the country whose conquest is depictured. The marshes and palm trees show that it must have been in southern Mesopotamia or in the districts watered by the Shat el Arab. A great retinue of charioteers and horsemen appeared to have followed Sennacherib to this war. Large circular shields were fixed to the sides of the chariots represented in the sculptures. The third chamber entered from that last described through a doorway guarded by colossal eagle-footed figures. 
contain the sculptured records of the conquest of part of Babylonia or of some other district to the south of it. Long lines of chariots, horsemen, and warriors divided into companies according to their arms, and their costume accompanied the king, the Assyrians having taken the principal city of the invaded country, cut down the palm trees within and without its walls, men beating drums, such as are still seen in the same country, and women clapping their hands in cadence to their song, came out to greet the conquerors. Beneath the walls was represented a great cauldron, which appears to have been supported upon metal images of oxen. Perhaps a vessel resembling the brazen sea of the Temple of Solomon. Such were the discoveries in the ruined palace of Sennacherib at the time of my departure for Europe. In this magnificent edifice, I had opened no less than seventy-one holes, chambers, and passages whose walls, almost without an exception, had been paneled with slabs of sculptured alabaster, recording the wars, the triumphs, and the great deeds of the Assyrian king, by a rough calculation, about 9,880 feet, or nearly two miles, of bas-reliefs with 27 portals, formed by colossal winged bulls and lion sphinxes, were uncovered in that part alone of the building, explored during my researches. The greatest length of the excavations was about 720 feet, the greatest breadth about 600 feet. The pavement of the chambers was from 20 to 35 feet below the surface of the mound. Only a part, however, of the palace has been explored and much still remains underground of this enormous structure. Since my return to Europe, other rooms and sculptures have been discovered. End of chapter 25, part 1. Recording by Wilma Magastino.